I'm Rachel Cassandra. Welcome to Midday Magazine for Wednesday, January 11th. Alaska schools are preparing to meet the new state educational requirements of the Reads Act next fall. The legislation aims to make sure that all Alaska students can read well before they pass third grade. But implementing the law will cost schools a lot of money at a time when state funding for education remains flat. So Petersburg School District is scrambling to figure out how to pay for the new requirements. KFSK has more. Hello, how are you? Eliza Wormack is sitting at a circular desk with three first graders on a recent morning. So we are going to read a book. Wormack is a reading teacher in Petersburg. This class is for early readers who want to work on spelling. She picks out a book on stick bugs. Their scientific name, Phasmids, is spelled with a P-H. That could be an S or a Z. Yes, you're right. is the only reading teacher at the school. This fall, the Reads Act will change her work dramatically. She's looking forward to some of the changes, like a new curriculum. But when she read through the nitty-gritty of the legislation, she was worried. It was kind of frightening at first because it seemed like a lot of rules and parameters were being placed upon us. Warmack isn't the only educator in Petersburg who agrees with the intention of the new law, but feels a considerable amount of anxiety about it. Petersburg's elementary school principal, Heather Kahn, is also concerned. The law asks kids to repeat a grade if they don't have a high enough score on the state's standardized reading test. Khan says last year, nearly 80% of third graders in her school didn't meet that mark. We took a state test last April, and based off of those results, I about, I about puked because it was not what I was expecting. Alaska performed second to last in reading levels last year, something the legislation aims to change. But kids are still recovering academically and emotionally in the wake of covid School funding from the state has been flat for six years, not even adjusted for inflation. So schools will have to figure out how to pay for new requirements with their withering budgets. Khan is especially worried about how to fit all the new instruction requirements into the school day. The Reads Act also requires additional testing and paperwork, summer school, teacher training, and a new curriculum. Khan agrees with the aim of the mandates. But she knows Petersburg's seasonal work schedule means kids miss extra school days. She worries the mandates will push families away. My fear is that we're going to see a decreased number of students in public education and more towards homeschool. In the small Petersburg School District office, Karen Morrison is spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to implement the Reads Act without breaking the budget. Morrison has been the director of finance for Petersburg schools for over a decade. She says the school has been operating on a bare-bones budget and staff for years. I don't even see where you could pull any cream off the top. There's no cream. We're as lean as we can be. Much of their latest budget crunch is due to increased utility costs. She says the price for heating fuel has risen 300% in the last few years. We don't have a choice but to keep our buildings heated. That eats into teaching supplies. It eats into uh, curriculum. The school has some COVID relief funds they can use for one-time costs. The district is in line for grants to pay for new curriculum costs and teacher training from the Reads Act. But they'll still need to cover a budget gap in the realm of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Morrison sees the budget as a puzzle the community needs to solve. It will actually be a community stakeholder 
and board decision on how we're going to fit it all together. And I see it being a combination of, of several different things, definitely leveraging our grants. There are still many unknowns in the specific requirements of the REEDS Act. Guidelines are rolling out as the State Education Department publishes them. And final regulations will be open for public comment and voted on in April. Back in the classroom, Eliza Warmack is wrapping up her reading group. Thank you for doing this investigation with me. She'll see these kids again next week. But next fall, she's not sure how her job will look. Bye. Anything else you need? Nope. Nope. Reporting in Petersburg, I'm Rachel Cassandra. Petersburg School District is hosting a series of gatherings to help families understand how the Reads Act will impact them. You can find more information on the school's online calendar at pcsd.us. The chairman of Sea Alaska Corporation and four education officials are the finalists to serve as the chancellor of the University of Alaska Southeast. The Alaska Beacon reports that on Monday, the university announced the shortlist of candidates for the job that will open when current Chancellor Karen Carey retires at the end of June. The Chancellor of UAS serves as the university's chief executive officer and will be appointed by University of Alaska President Pat Pitney. In a statement online, Pitney said the finalists, quote, are all leaders chosen from a pool of diverse and highly qualified candidates. UAS has a main campus in Juneau and satellite campuses in Ketchikan and Sitka. It's the smallest of the three schools that includes the University of Alaska Fairbanks and the University of Alaska Anchorage. The five finalists will visit all three UAS campuses in the coming weeks. A final selection will be made after those visits likely in the middle or end of February, according to Pitney. Trappers killed more than 60 wolves during the month-long season on Prince of Wales Island late last year. Trappers are now pushing state authorities to move the season to the spring to allow them to take advantage of better conditions. But environmental advocates say too many wolves are being killed already, and a spring season would only make things worse. KRBD's Reagan Miller reports. State wildlife officials say 62 wolves were taken during the 31-day harvest that ran from mid-November to mid-December. State biologists are comfortable with that number. Based on population estimates and previous harvest rates, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game expected that somewhere between 60 and 100 wolves would be taken this season. The state estimated roughly 230 wolves lived on Prince of Wales Island and the surrounding islands as of the fall of 2021. Biologists aim for a population of between 150 and 200 wolves. But environmental advocates are worried. Colette Adkins is the carnivore conservation director for the Center for Biological Diversity, one of the groups fighting to list the Alexander Archipelago wolf as endangered. I mean, 60-something last year, 60-something this year. Um, These wolves are going to end up on the endangered species list if this type of trapping continues. Adkins says her organization would like to see trapping stop on the island altogether. But area trappers have other ideas including moving the season to the spring instead of the winter. Trapper Devin Dolan submitted a letter to Ketchikan's Fish and Game Advisory Committee explaining why he feels that the wolf harvest should be moved to the beginning of March. Dolan was a member of the committee until his term expired this past summer. He also addressed the committee at its recent meeting. A lot of people have complained for years about ice in November and December and snow and can't access areas, bad weather, short days. 
Trappers also wouldn't be in the field around the same time as duck or deer hunters. He says a spring season would avoid snaring deer during their critical breeding season. Moving it into uh, March is the deer slowed down a lot. They're not quite moving as much. They're still moving, but they're not moving as quite a wide of a range where you would catch them in a snare quite as likely. They're going to be laying a little bit lower. The Ketchikan Advisory Committee unanimously chose to support a spring trapping season. But Adkins, from the Center for Biological Diversity, says the idea comes with its own problems. That's during the wolves' breeding season. It's a particularly sensitive time for wolves. And there are so many other ways to protect uh, deer from snaring. She suggests so-called breakaway devices that have a loop that breaks with a certain amount of force. Moving the trapping season to March would only make things worse for wolves. While the advisory committee supported the idea, it's not scheduled for discussion by the Board of Game when it meets in Ketchikan on January 20th. There are a few wolf-related items on the Board of Game's agenda. One proposal from the Alaska Wildlife Alliance would nearly double the target wolf population to between 250 and 350 wolves. Others would change the way the population or harvest level are calculated. A proposal from Ketchikan's advisory committee would open the wolf hunting season September 1st and set a five-wolf bag limit. Most wolves are killed by trappers, but an earlier hunting season would allow deer hunters to kill wolves that they encounter. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. In much of the world, the Christmas season continued into the new year with Eastern Orthodox Christians overseas and in the United States celebrating Russian Christmas on January 7th. On Saturday, St. Michael's Russian Orthodox Cathedral in Sitka hosted its annual nativity service featuring a divine liturgy and choral music with lyrics in Klinkit, Alut, and Yupik, as well as Latin. KCAW's Meredith Reddick brings us this audio postcard featuring the voices of Father Ishmael Andrew and choral director Kathy Hope Erickson. And I always say that's a reward for having gone through that. You just heard the voices of Father Ishmael Andrew and choral director Kathy Hope Erickson with the sounds of the annual nativity service at St. Michael's Russian Orthodox Cathedral in Sitka. Traditional Filipino folk dance and music classes are returning to Kachikan this spring. 
The classes are part of a Ketchikan Wellness Coalition program aimed at promoting health and cultural heritage in the Filipino community. KRBD's Reagan Miller has more about the program and the kinds of classes that dancers remember in Ketchikan years ago. Growing up in Ketchikan, Lynn Buendia McClendon's parents put her in traditional dance classes when she was around eight years old. We did it for festivals, and we did parties, and we did it for the um, cruise ship. She remembers tinickling, a dance performed with bamboo sticks. She says the bamboo poles represented herons, and the dancers represented how the birds would walk through nature. There's also a candle dance, and I don't remember exclusively what the candle dance was supposed to represent, but we all had candles that we held in our hands, and it was all that one was all women. The tinickling was usually um, co-ed, so it was boys and girls, and it was usually pairs, so like my brother's dance, my cousin's dance. And for the younger dancers, there was the coconut dance. They do that with coconut shells, and um, they always were always laughing and having fun. But right now, there isn't a public place in Ketchikan for adults and kids to learn these types of traditions. The Filipino Community Center closed its doors in 2015. That's why the Ketchikan Wellness Coalition applied for a grant from the Alaska Community Foundation. The grant will allow the organization to start at Mugsayawan Ketchikan, a series of traditional folk dance and music classes with dedicated instructors. The classes will start this spring for adults and children alike. For the next generation, it's a doubly important step towards connecting with culture. McClendon lives with her children in California now and hopes they'll one day be able to learn the same dances she did growing up in Ketchikan. I really treasure and like those memories and that we were part of that. And now my kids are starting to ask questions and I'm hoping that they'll be able to pick it up and be able to pass it on to their kids. Gina Kaplan took up traditional Filipino folk dance when she was in elementary school. Her parents moved to Ketchikan from the Philippines and signed her up to learn. When my parents had introduced it to us, saying, hey, it's really important that you learn kind of uh, the cultural dance of, like, where we came from and trying to pass along traditional dance. And, you know, as a child, you're like, oh, great. We're being forced into, like, entertaining our parents. She now lives in Oregon, but looking back, Kaplan is grateful for the chance. She's still friends with many of the others who took the classes with her over four decades ago. I think about those days on a weekend when we as a community would gather and it would always be potluck style and you would have all kinds of traditional Filipino foods brought on to a point where it was like a an event, a fun event that as kids that we look forward to being able to see each other and convene and celebrate, you know. She hopes that the classes will be a way for younger Filipino people in Ketchikan to connect with their roots. We've got, like, first, second, third generation born in the U.S. who have not really had a connection to, you know, the Philippines and kind of their way of life and tradition and culture. Ketchikan Wellness Coalition staff expect that the classes will start up in May and run through October, when there will be a final showcase leading up to the community's Phil Am Festival. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. And for KFSK, I'm Rachel Cassandra.